Don't tell me what to do, Jimmy. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Today's episode is the penultimate episode of season five. Aside from it being an equal part fantastic and devastating precursor to the finale, which of course was the basis of my outreach to David Chase a little over a year ago, it's the Adriana episode, yes. But so much more locks into place and crystallizes. Loyalty lasts so long as it's convenient. Conformity, in the form of Christopher assuming there was no possible outcome better than the path he was already on. And a couple few other things we'll explore together as we work through the episode. One of the things I love about this episode in particular is that we assume coming in that it's going to be about Tony B. And master that he is, Chase puts him at the periphery at best. It's the ultimate Euro step with a clear path to the basket. This decision, in fact, gave birth to James Harden. Okay, let's do this. HBO synopsis. With the feds pulling a new trump card, Adriana ponders her options. Tony B unloads some heavy baggage on Tony and vice versa. Johnny Sack makes Tony an offer he can refuse, and Tony offers Carmela a deal to make her real estate dreams come true. This episode was written by Terrence Winter, directed by Tim Van Patten, and originally aired on May 23rd, 2004. We open on FBI CCTV. Seeing that made me wonder how much, if any, the technology around closed-circuit TV for surveillance has changed over time. First off, being closed-circuit simply means not widely distributed. The signal is transmitted to specific places rather than broadly. In fact, pre-surveillance use cases were pay-per-view-style fights, the Thrilla in Manila being perhaps the most famous among them. This use case was replaced by cable TV, and today's use cases are fairly well-established. Fighting crime, traffic monitoring, spying on employees, and as we know from the show, small business proprietors, and their back-alley activities. More recently, internet protocol or IP cameras have become popular alternatives to the traditional analog variety. And one of the advantages, besides image quality, is security, especially when on a VPN. But that's enough. What's this, girl with the fucking dragon tattoo now? Stieg Larsson over here? Walter's crushing a sandwich while tracking Adriana's moments at the Crazy Horse. He's digesting that sandwich in much the same way a lot of us are about to digest pro sports in the coming weeks and months. The sandwich gets his brain firing on all cylinders, and he sees enough to bring Robin in for a closer look. Robin Sanseverino. No, it's not that TikTok video you watch on loop 13 times, but something's afoot, and you don't need high resolution to see it. Aid throws away a garbage bag in the dumpster, changes her mind, and throws it in the trunk of her car. We've only seen one instance of her calculating gene, 
back when her friend moved in on Christopher and she ratted her out to San Severino. Which is to say, we know it's there. But Adriana's always been the beacon of innocence on the show, relatively speaking. Always have to qualify it with that. Look, being engaged to an heir apparent of a mob family doesn't scream innocence, but it's all relative, right? And it makes you wonder, how much more tainted on the spectrum is Carmela? Or even, what's the difference? Is there one? What triggered her to take the bag out of the trash? If there's that much self-awareness about the trash, was the realization that she was on camera too much of a stretch? Again, I recognize that this is Tony-level paranoia, and she's not him. And I confess, most of this is just an exercise in wanting to see her live. Cut to Adriana at the doctor's office. If CCTV won't kill you, ulcerative colitis will. That's the diagnosis. Speaking of ulcerative colitis, I wonder if there's an uptick in this diagnosis with all the current political and pandemic hysteria. Per the Mayo Clinic, stress aggravates but does not cause ulcerative colitis. I've just now said ulcerative colitis three times without getting tongue-tied. I'll keep waiting for that fucking boutonniere. AIDS doc puts her on a steroid to curb the inflammation. Like for weightlifters? The kind of steroid Adriana's referring to are anabolic steroids. Those produce testosterone. The kind of steroid AID was prescribed was a corticosteroid. That produces cortisol. I know. Dr. Oz over here. Doc warns about weight gain and a swelling of the face called Cushing's syndrome. Asked my wife about this, who's a professor in genetics, and she says many instances of this are mild, possible side effect of too much cortisol. Kind of ironic, right? Given the many puffy faces after this episode faded to black. If the contents of the episode weren't enough, the outro track was the nail in the coffin. Also, Adriana's face during her powerful encounter with Christopher. Cushing's on the cushion. I know, terrible. Next, the doc goes off script. Moonface. You know, like Jerry Lewis recently. Lewis apparently had to wean himself off prednisone in a rehab clinic. Gained like 60 pounds. Also, by the way, Lewis, the king of comedy, was born in Newark. Last little bit on this scene, Aid's mom looks different. It's still Patty McCormick, though. Love her disgust at the doctor for not understanding that prednisone and wedding planning were strange bedfellows. Cut to Tony tinkering with the AV system in his house. The quintessential characteristic of the modern man. That could very well have been a lot of us trying to figure out what HBO we have or should have or need to have. Max, now, go, just HBO. What in the actual fuck is going on there? 
HBO brand is canon. It's elite and premier and world-class. What happened? Now, the shit I don't know could fill a book. But the Max release felt botched. How do you botch that? Like, I've always felt like if HBO wasn't its own thing, it should be. Why didn't it go the way of being its own standalone Netflix-type platform? The whole thing feels mismanaged. But what am I, an activist shareholder now? Carl Icahn over here. Barbarians at the gate. Trying to add a channel, my modern-day analog to this is removing channels that my two-year-old randomly adds to our Roku. Speaking of Roku, no deal for HBO Max yet. Come on, huh? Tony's trying to help Carm fix the TV, and they dance around the idea of getting back together. He mentions he dreamed about moving back in. This, of course, is a direct extension of their shared moment together at the end of Test Dream, but also something building up toward this since Marco Polo. Tony makes a Popeye joke. I am what I am. And Carm parries and punches with she didn't marry a cartoon. This thing could quickly get out of control. Seemingly wanting this thing to get out of control, Tony brings up her thing with Furio, calls it an indiscretion by itself, in its own special way. And I gotta say, nice symmetry calling back the episode that split them up, Whitecaps. And now here we are doing the episode where they get back together. But her look was two-pronged. One, my rap sheet is nothing compared to yours. And two, a tinge of guilt about what happened with her and Wegler. Popeye sidebar, because why the fuck not? Love that my two favorite things reference him. Here, of course, and in Rocky IV. Drago's wife references him, explaining Drago's freakish strength. Carm's admission that she got herself to this point is interesting, and also two-pronged. Part admission that she enabled Tony to become who he is, the fullest version of himself at least, and the start of her angle to renegotiate the terms of this thing of theirs. Tony says that stuff will never happen again. Eyes darting, as he says it. Which I read as code for, he believes himself about as much as we do. Now, is Carmela that naive, or does she want the spec house that bad? Finally, love the touch of the crowd going wild in the background as we cut to an Italian restaurant-style tablecloth, and an ashtray full of cigarettes, giving Johnny Sack a run for his money. Summer snow is playing in the background. It's revealed to be Phil Leotardo, and much to his chagrin, he's putting scraps in his scrapbook. Flashback scene. Interesting that the first thing we see is him checking his hair in a reflection. Next, we see Tony B. fire multiple shots at Billy. Six shots, to be exact. Again, why only scathe, Phil? Whatever happened to no witnesses? Great visual piece of direction. We see a car pull away through spokes of a bike. Phil checks Billy's pulse. Very textbook of him. And we cut to Carmine and his counsel. He's holed up for protection. 
Another timely scene, right? He's donning a Western shirt. Chris Saka over here. Fitting. Could there be a Western-style showdown in the offing? They're talking about retaliation, counterattacks. Carmine Stagmeyer itself is a quagmire. Rusty's agitating for leadership, for action, but Carmine is paralyzed, staring into the fire. Game of Thrones over here. Now, we've talked about this before, but you can't help but see glimmers of George W. Bush here, ruminating on decisions made, on decisions unmade. And maybe, what secret hatch door Dick Cheney was going to pop out of at any moment? I recently listened to a great Chase interview done by Andy Greenwald back when he had a podcast on Grantland. And Chase specifically mentions and addresses the Bush administration there. Cut to Tony and Sill, lamenting the situation with Tony B. All I did for that blue-eyed prick, and he completely fucks me over. Chris comes in. He's late on account that the highway was jammed with broken heroes on a last-chance power drive. That classic line, of course, comes from Springsteen's Born to Run, the title song of his album of the same name. 21 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Now, Chris might have also blamed it on a 10th Avenue freeze-out. Whatever that means. Apparently, Springsteen doesn't even know. Or maybe a meeting across the river. But that wouldn't apply because he'd wait in the car, remember? Or maybe there was an incident on 57th Street. Or something in the night. Okay, that's it. But I love the beat after he says it. To allow that line to breathe. Sometimes you gotta pat yourself on the back when no one else will, right? And did you see the makings of a shit-eating grin on Moltisanti's face when he sits down too? Tony B's still MIA. On a milk carton. What was up with that milk carton stuff anyway? It was a big thing in the 80s. Thanks to an organization called the National Child Safety Council, milk carton advertising went from a few cities in the Midwest to a nationwide campaign. But the efficacy of the program was small. And it was ultimately obsoleted by the Amber Alert system that we all love that always seems to blow up our phones at the most inopportune time. Mr. Empathy over here. Speaking of Mr. Empathy, Aide comes in. There she is. My smelly valentine. Christopher, that's not funny. Of course, that's a play on my funny valentine. I think the Ella Fitzgerald version is the most well-known. That or Sinatra. The jazz standard has been performed by over 600 different artists over the years. To Tony's chagrin, she hands Chris a Heineken. Love that he refers to it as a cocktail. Very erudite of him. But why the fuck's he drinking? Moltisanti came up with all the material today. Gonna have to replace her colon with a semicolon. Where that sits in the pantheon of writerly jokes, I can't say for sure. But with The Sopranos, context matters. And it fits right into this conversation like a missing puzzle piece. Sill floats the notion of becoming a vegan. 
just timely and prescient. Diets 2004 versus diets 2020. Very little has changed. Chris continues, ironically, she's got the world at her feet and she walks around like impending doom. But that sounds a little like him. And Tony. What's Christopher, a projector now? Finally, Tony and Aid share a nice moment together. Note for the last time. They don't know it, but it's a nice overall metaphor. Things can change on a dime. Cut to Tony and Syl walking up for a sit-down with Johnny Sack, Phil, and don't tell me what to do, Jimmy. First time I've noticed the background of this space, the high ceilings, the windows along the upper third of the wall, just shadows and energy all around. Christopher, predictably, is reduced to the corner. Love that nothing even needs to be said. All it took was a look. That's all it took, yeah, just one look. This is his men are talking here, in air quotes, moment, after his last encounter with Johnny Sack in the same room, episodes back. So, Tony apologizes, but Phil isn't interested. Anybody ever die in your arms, you cocksucker? A family member, somebody you love? No. Well, give it time. See if I can't make that happen for you. That's enough. Johnny Sack echoes Jimmy, urging Phil to calm down. And with a little more finesse, he gets Phil to leave the table. Tony says the hit was unsanctioned. The lone gunman theory. Another JFK reference. We had a lot of JFK in the test stream, too. Continuity. For the record, a 10-month investigation resulting in what was called the Warren Commission concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK and that he acted alone. All told, there were three rifle shots. There's that number three again. How many times has Tony's life been in danger? So far, we're at one in Isabella. Will we get to three? Is that the key? We'll have to wait and see. But back on JFK, there's still a faction of doubt and suspicion of a cover-up to this day. But this isn't the fucking UN now. And that ship has sailed. Back to Johnny Sack. He wants Tony B on a fucking spit. Franklin Barbecue over here. Tony doesn't know where he is, and Silvio echoes the same. In an effort to get off the hook, perhaps, avoid being a possible target himself. He's like J.R. Smith back when he was on the Cavs with LeBron on the bench. LeBron's trying to ascertain who collapsed on a defensive coverage. JR's like, wasn't me. That's Silvio right there. Johnny Sack says that if uh, Tony B can't be produced, he has another target in mind. What, I got to stand here being threatened now? All right, Chrissy. All right, all right, all right. Nobody's making threats. And he tells us again with just a look. Christopher, just the look is enough. That is so fucking powerful. And Curatola is a genius in these moments. His body language alone is Emmy-worthy, and it's criminal he didn't get one. But it's all there, especially here. Hall of Fame fucking Johnny Sack moment. And he tops it off with an all-time line. 
You either deliver that prick to my door or I will rain a shitstorm down on your family like you have never fucking seen. Some people who repeat that line from time to time in company or, you know, randomly to their family or friends or whatever, playing cards, board games, or maybe even in boardrooms, they add in the likes of which you have never fucking seen. And I have sometimes done that as well. I feel like both are equally effective, but as written, I'm almost like a strict constructionist when it comes to Sopranos text. Whatever's written in the text is what I'm going to roll with. But I will admit, I do like the addition of the likes of which you have never fucking seen, too. You either deliver that prick to my door, or I will rain a shitstorm down on you and your family like you have never fucking seen. We're done here. I'll let that sit there for a few beats so we can all gather the broken pieces of ourselves off the floor. The precision of his tone, the immediacy, the imminence, goosebumps every single time. Also warrants mentioning again because it is a signature characteristic of the character, never has there ever been a man more in control of his cigarette than Johnny Sack. He even seemingly controls the direction the smoke rises. And what's interesting here, Tony's crew has inflicted all this body count damage to Johnny Sack and his associates. Yet, Johnny Sack has never looked more in command or control. And he's not even officially the king of New York yet. He's even got a collar pin through his tie knot. If that alone isn't king of New York shit, what is? Leaving this scene, I could stay in it for hours. I love the camera pullback as Tony and Syl get up. Things are about to get exceedingly distant with Tony and Johnny Sack. We feel it. We hear it. And now we can see it. Cut from darkness to light. The beach and a spit of rocks jutting out into the sea. See what I did there? Kids on an educational field trip. Sea Scouts, to be precise. Part of the Boy Scouts program. Learning about conks and whatnot. Not sure if any of you ever played the Jaws game on Nintendo back in the day. Jaws just celebrated its 45th anniversary, so I thought of that. But conks were the equivalent of Mario coins in that game. And for some reason, every time I hear or see a conk, I think of that game. I sucked at it. Kids are learning about mollusks, and we kind of get a mini education too. There are over 200,000 species. But three kids, there's three again, Splinter off to the beachhead and spot a dead body. Here we go. Cut to Tony and Carm at Artie's. Artie's showing signs he's happy they're back together. He's already looking ahead to them being grandparents. Carm says, bite your tongue. Not so fast. All this is from news about Meadow episodes back and her engagement with Finn. And then Tony and Carm resume their dance around getting back together. Meadow's engagement was a trigger. Perhaps, but Carm is leading up to something here. Companionship is good. Kids, 
empty nest. Again, fine and good. But what really seals the deal? Tony thinks it's another kid. And arguably just as expensive. But no, it's a lot on Crestview. She wants to build a spec house. And she recites the price the way all of us wish we could in any negotiation. 600000 Just the lot. Tony says he'll free up a down payment. Thinks it's over. But Carm's still negotiating. Pulling terminology right out of the glossary of her negotiations book. On the table. She must have cleared the shelves at Borders of all the Negotiation 101 books when she stopped by after Wagler's Madame Bovary wreck a few episodes back. Tony swears his midlife crisis is over, but again, does that even mean anything anymore? Aren't we beyond the pretense and subtext here that this is transactional? He is what he is. This thing is what it is. This is renegotiation, a re-up. Certain things will be stipulated and certain penalties will be paid. But then, back on the gridiron for this thing we call the regularness of life. Regardless, transactional though it may be, we're now a far cry away from Led Zeppelin's Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You over here. Speaking of music, the music at Artie's is reminiscent of Godfather, a moment between Michael and Kay. Carmela here, though, is a more evolved Kay. Also, I know it's not, but the spitting image of Maria Sharapova is over Tony's shoulder. She's done cameos in Billions, so it checks out. Chris and Age show up, and Tony immediately takes Chris to the bathroom to let him know about the cigarette scam. It got the Fed's attention. The tax stamps, remember? Let's put our economics, interstate commerce, and public health hats on for a second. I know, a lot of fucking hats for Tony to tell us to remove. Taxing tobacco is one way to curb its use. Make it more expensive, less people can afford it. Less people will use it, less people will die. Don Draper will have to come up with better ads to prop the tobacco firms up single-handed. Now, selling illegal cigarettes, ones without stamps, undermines this scheme. The way it usually works is cigarettes are bought, or in the case of Christopher and company, copped, motherload baby, from states or jurisdictions with low or no excise taxes, and sold in jurisdictions with high taxes. Stamps provide the sufficient documentation that the taxes have been paid on that box or carton of cigarettes. But here we learn Christopher mismanaged this job for Tony. I'd imagine unstamped boxes were found in bodegas or vending machines. Basically, poor quality control. But what's this supposed to be? Six Sigma certified now? Jack Welch over here? Not for nothing. Actually, there's a lot of something. This is the second time in as many scenes as we've seen Chris holding a drink. What the fuck? Somebody get this guy an accountability app. That or another sponsor he can bust out. 
Tony says he's putting Pauly in charge. He could have probably said any other person, and Christopher might have been a little less mad. Tony really puts the screws to him by saying Pauly specifically. Chris's end just got cut by half. Imagine if Tony wasn't in a good mood and things weren't on the upswing with Carmella. Actually, come to think of it as I sit here, maybe part of that tax was to pay for the spec lot on Crestview. The things Chris loses this episode. Also makes you wonder, who's been a bigger problem to this point? Chris or Aid? Leading up to this, we've kind of felt this, but now it becomes apparent, right? Chris's arc has always been more concave than convex. Chris destroys his wine glass, and I can't help but think of Annie Lennox. At home, he cries to Adriana. This, by the way, was a great precursor setup for Adriana to tell Christopher later. The range of emotion is on full display, and the writers set this up for the two of them so perfectly. So perfectly that they both won Emmys, right? I read or heard somewhere about Chase's respect for the character, Adriana in particular. Never was it ever more apparent than right here. You know I could take him out in a second, that fat fuck. Bang! His kids wouldn't even give a shit. Don't talk like that. It's so subtle, but the mention of Tony's kids signals two things for me. One, Christopher fashions himself kind of as one of his kids. That level of closeness, certainly. However mislabeled that might be. Words are meaningless, right? And two, he himself is a kid, behaving with all these histrionics, not being able to shake addiction, not manning up the way Tony would expect him to. He's paranoid, jealous, scared, resentful, and it's portrayed beautifully here, down to the projectile of his spit as he blathers on. Me, he don't need to fucking think. Well, maybe I need to think. Ever thought of that, you fat fucking scumbag? Might not be such a bad idea, actually. Note, Chris is yelling at the wall, almost as if there's a picture of Tony on it. But also, and this is kind of fourth wall, but part of me feels like maybe Gandolfini was on the other side of that wall at Silver Cup or something. Then we get a great last shot of them on the couch together. Broken. Could be an Edward Hopper painting. That's the guy, Adriana. My Uncle Tony. The guy I'm going to hell for. The linger here is special. Kind of like the way Nora Jones hangs on the word else on Hurts to Be Alone, a track off her newest album which has been on heavy rotation. From hell to feds, more or less the same thing in this thing of ours, right? 
to watching more video on the Crazy Horse poll. Long Branch detectives pay a visit. Not your average bulls. Code for low-ranking beat cops. There's a weightiness to this moment that gets Kubitoso curious. Wants to inquire. And then he exits the frame like he's got to preside over a large distribution deal for Rayo's sauce. Still the best. And quite frankly, only fucking sauce. Cut to Tony checking in on Valentina. Remember her? He's there to pay her off. They mention an actor with short hair, kind of an analog to what Valentina could look like when she pulls through this. Who are they talking about? Clearly best that they didn't say and put her on blast to 11 million people the night of. But I always wondered. Tony says everything's going to be paid for. Ad nauseum. Was that a malaprop? For all you lawyers or legal scholars out there, did he mean to say ad infinitum? Tony says he's going back to his wife. That's the justification here. But is that really the reason? And then in true narcissistic fashion, he makes her pain about himself. Doesn't want her hitching her wagon to his star. Love that expression. It has to do with people who try to succeed by forming a relationship with someone who's already successful. It's a great turn of phrase, but is that really applicable here? Or is that just Tony's head? Thinking it is. She threatens to kill herself and not a beat passes. He says he has to take a call. I gotta take this. Solidly unfucking sentimental Safe to say you're not going to see Tony working at a suicide hotline anytime soon. On the other line, it's Tony B. Building up courage. But he can't say anything yet. Remember this moment that'll come back again in the next episode. Then Tony thinks about going back into Valentina, but takes this as his clean out. And that's that. T calls Sill, who's scrubbing out a stain from his lapel, regularness of life, asks him to get Gerard, a friend at the phone company, to put traps on all his lines. Traps are like the opposite of pen registers. Those capture outbound calls, whereas a trap captures inbound ones. Cut to Adriana getting scooped up by the feds. She was buying medicine. I know it might be a little silly, but I always saw that scene as like a metaphor for, you know, she needed a prescription for life. Time just wasn't on her side. Feds want to talk to her. And the brevity of the scene serves to create an urgency. If you're really sticking with the episode, you start to wonder if that body that washed up on shore is going to come back to bite Adriana right there. Cut to Tony returning home. Doesn't seem as happy as you would expect. Kind of a grass is always greener sort of realization. He asks AJ for help to put his stuff in the bedroom, which signified that this was permanent. This moment between AJ and T is kind of anticlimactic. Perhaps a carryover from their rough patch while living together. Remember the cereal? Carm is putting the finishing touches on dinner. She never skips a beat. And her consolation prize today is a Hermes scarf. Supposed to be the best. That, of course, refers to Hermes, a French luxury brand 
that dates back to 1837. They started out making saddles and stuff for horses. The couture stuff didn't start until expansion to America in the 1930s. The scarves debuted in 1937. And as of 2019, it's number 33 on the Forbes list of most valuable brands. Which seems low. I looked up the list, and here are some standouts. Lego was 96, which makes even less sense. Its brand value registered at $8 billion. That, by the way, is different, of course, than its market cap. For all you CNBC Maria Bartiromo folks out there, ESPN was 47 with a brand value of $13 billion. Netflix, 38 with a brand value of $15.5 billion. Marlboro, at 23 with a brand value of $28.5 billion. And that's without Johnny Sack as their spokesman. Insert him into the lineup, and it's top fucking 10. Easy. No contest. Number one was Apple. And incredibly, its brand value was almost double that of Google. Number two on the list. Honestly, almost makes Google look like a glorified crew. The dinner table was awkward, naturally. Eating is happening faster than normal. Topic of discussion turns to the variety of butters in the Soprano household. A lot of butter options. She must have not gotten the dietary memo from Silvio earlier. Also, what would Livia think? Carm embraces cursing. Another first here. She figures, what the hell, let me at least get the ink dry on that spec contract before I turn this place into a prison again. Tony celebrates the occasion with champagne, and everybody gets to participate, including AJ. Without skipping a beat, Carmela dampens the mood by mentioning the correlation between uncorking champagne bottles and detached retinas. Cue SNL's Debbie Downer music. SNL's relevant to this episode in particular, as we'll see later. Tony makes a toast to the people I love. Nothing else matters. Echoes of the season one finale. Later that night, T's enjoying TV and ice cream. Carmelo's unloading the dishwasher. Regular people doing regular things. If only we all had that same lighting, documenting the banality of it all. I heard Chase get asked for the 100th time how he felt about glorifying these characters. I think he was asked by Charlie Rose. And Chase responded, sitting in front of a pork store or in a dungeness office space of a strip club is glorifying? I thought that was a great answer. Even in speech, he ends his dialogue with declarative punctuation. A definitive period or question mark that knocks your chair off balance like Richie Aprile's. Some of the best scenes in The Sopranos are the ones with no dialogue. This one's no different. Carmela merely glances over at Tony and watches him. And we get to think any number of things and any number of thoughts. Top of the list for me was regrets. Back over at FBI headquarters, the fucking hum of that room as they watch the tape. The sound detail 
they show Adriana what they have on her. They're gloating. Aid asks, is it illegal to film people without telling them? Now, without going full law and order over here, laws vary by state. But generally, you can't record people where they have a reasonable expectation of complete privacy. So that means places like changing rooms, hotel rooms, bathrooms, bedrooms, stuff like that. There's no reasonable expectation of privacy in a parking lot of a public establishment. So they're arguably okay here within the confines of the law. Note her hand rubbing. Telltale sign of guilt. Any good lawyer would have coached her up on that. And the feds knew it. Kubitoso especially. He's working her in ways he knows he shouldn't. Remember that lawyer in The Night Of that took the case pro bono? The way she instructed Nas on how to behave and what to do and what to say? The feds knew this. That's why they intercepted her first and then stalled with the lawyer, which could have been problematic for them in a courtroom from a Fourth Amendment standpoint if it got that far. But what am I, Clarence Darrow now? They show her a picture of the dead guy at the beach, Gilbert Nieves. There was IR residue on his hand linking back to the crazy horse. How's that for circumstantial evidence at a granular level? They continue. They know what was in the bag and accuse her of disposing the evidence. Not sure about New Jersey, but in California, that alone is a misdemeanor and subject to about six months in jail plus fines. So she snitches on Matouche. She's playing her cards. The deck is stacked against her. She's got a flimsy hand, but she's anteing up. We get a flashback with voiceover. Matouche asks to use the back office to use a fax machine for a personal matter and gives her drugs as payment, which is a sign that it was more than just a fax machine send going on. And also, come the fuck on, right? Now look, this is cringeworthy to a lot of us, but this is Adriana. And this is that moment when we want to jump in the screen to protect her. Because she can't connect the dots the way we see this playing out in front of us. Those empty seats in the room signify us. Dead guy walks in and says he was owed money. That Matouche screwed him. He got sold baby powder instead of the real stuff. I will say, good baby powder does go a long way. You know, for other applications than getting high, obviously. So the two guys jump Gilbert in the office and commit a sloppy kill, to say the least. And the argument is that she essentially helped them. She's an accessory. Stay in the flashback for a second now. Should she have told Chris then? Why hide it all this time? Maybe something could have been done. What? Not sure. Maybe the evidence or the cleanup could have been handled more professionally. This is, after all, Christopher's primary skill set. Maybe they could have turned Matouche over to the authorities. 
something other than this downward spiral, in other words. And then we get our bit of comedy amidst the chaos, right? Adriana is lauding Matusha's reconnection to God. Says he isn't a bad person. Prays all the time, sends all his money back home to Pakistan to a prep school. Kubitoso's expressions are all our expressions. But here's my thing on this. They have this witness wrapped around their finger. She's malleable. And they can pitch her a story she can really sink her teeth into. Why not slow things down? Develop her more. Make her think she's really wearing a cape and doing good in the world. Carmen San Diego shit. What's the rush, is my point. They've been building a case against Sopranos all this time. Why not actually try and get it right for a change? But instead, they double down. What would be an otherwise misdemeanor in California, they say is 25 years. Kind of arbitrary, I'd say, but effective. The point was to have her tap out without grimacing around on the mat, channeling her inner Rocky. The alternative to 25 years, of course, is that she can cooperate for real. Wires. Getting Tony on tape. And right then, perhaps, summoning some loose memories from past episodes of Law & Order that were on in the background, she asks for a lawyer. Now she asks for a lawyer. Playing that shitty hand again. Rod Tidwell over here, riding that ass like Zorro, until it shows her the money. Harris says he'll get a public defender. Robin patronizes. Maybe Christopher knows a good lawyer. Oh, you fucking piece of shit. Ever since we've known her, Robin shoots condescension like she's playing duck hunt. Back at Casa Soprano real quick, Tony and Carm are hanging up his clothes, and she offers to iron his stuff. She misses it. They get fresh. thought that came to mind for me watching this over again was, besides the fact that I'm glad that they're in a happy place together, ironing and dry cleaning are two technologies ripe for disruption. There just has to be a better way. But what's the shark tank now? Cut to Chris. Home, drinking, third time this episode. He's calling aid, gets her voicemail, which I've missed many times. On her voicemail, she's telling her mother about another good registry gift, a decanter. To me, that's one of the last vestiges of a world before text messaging was widely adopted. Next, we cut to where Adriana is, holed up in a bathroom. She's a mess. And she's overhearing a regular conversation between two girls. It's a super powerful moment. This coupled with Christopher's moment at the gas station. Two regularness of life moments that combine in Voltron-like fashion to make us emote in ways we haven't yet in our journey with the Sopranos. David Chase wants us to feel this episode. 
And the walls of feeling collapse on us from both sides in these two moments. She'd do anything to be them right now. Be someplace else. Maybe a do-over. How relatable is that? How many of us have been there? Thought that? Felt that? I certainly have. Certainly not as dire of circumstances as Adriana. But it's one of the reasons the show ripens with age. The more chinks in the armor, the more body blows, whatever our version of CCTV footage is, read, whatever our stupid mindless mistake that cost us something big is, we get to feel someone else go through an exact version of that in a super hyper real way. And if nothing else, share an experience together with these characters. Robin says they've left four messages for a lawyer. Sips her coffee. Did they even call once? The sip of the coffee. Again, the linger. Cut to Tony. Backyard. Note the sound of ducks or geese, or some variation thereof. Smoking, lounging, thinking about better days with Tony B. Godfather-esque. Remember at the end of 2? It's a nice little interlude for us viewers to ready us, prime us, relax the tissue in our hearts and brains to fully absorb what's coming. And I love that in this episode in particular, we're getting these constant juxtapositions between frames of calm and chaos, humor and horror, innocence and insolence. Fucking alliteration over here. Back at the FBI, Robin's convinced she can get Moltisanti to flip, but she can't even get Adriana to deliver the goods for her. How's she going to get Chris to flip? That's like Aaron Rodgers throwing a 70-yard pass at the end of a game into the back of the end zone and assuming they're going to win. Oh, wait. That actually happened. More than once, I think. Her Hail Mary is screenwriting. I'll put in a call to Sam Goldwyn. He, of course, is one of the pioneers of the early film industry. Fun connectivity to the show. He was known for his legendary malaprops. They had their own name. Goldwynisms. And we get our red herring. We get our possible create-your-own-adventure series over here. The FBI is open to immunity and relocation for the two of them. Aid bought herself a few days, or they turn her over to the Long Branch PD to be formally arrested and put through the system. San Severino walks out, and we cut to Silvio walking in. Back to Tony. There's a phone call from New York. It's Jimmy. Don't tell me what to do, Jimmy. Guys are talking about a tennis match. Jimmy says my guy won. Johnny Sack, that is. Roger Federer over here. Says Carmine dropped out. Early Novak Djokovic over here. Begs the question. Is T happy with this? Would he rather have had Carmine be in power? Easier. More maneuverable leader. I think so. 
being overly political and overly deferential to Johnny Sachs been nothing but a pain in his ass. There's fucking details with Johnny Sack. Carmine feels much more hands-off. A couple of fancy dinners a month. A lot of delegation. Johnny Sack's like a agitator on a board of directors, whereas Carmine feels more like a limited, silent partner, if you will. Tony likes pragmatists, remember? Johnny Sack used to be one. Some people are better at being number twos. Silvio, interestingly, gets the last word on this power struggle. Hold on to that line for next episode. Cut to the scene. Adriana tells Chris, no, not about Bobby DeMarco, about what we've been building up to for several years. She's been cooperating with the feds. Chris listens, but doesn't. Note the fish tank behind him, the bubbles. I always read that as the oxygen was being sucked out of the room. The bubbles flanking both sides of his head. All the oxygen is leaving his body. Fucking Manhattan Project over here. Again. Should she have told him about Matouche first? Would the outcome play out any different? He explodes, attacks her, almost kills her. The scene is somewhat reminiscent of one we see with Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas. There's also a little bit of Michael Corleone and Kay when she tells him about the abortion. All that rage and fear combine powerfully in this moment between Chris and Abe. But something inside him makes him back off. Then apologize. Genuinely, too, which is uncharacteristic. Knowing how Christopher's arc fully plays out, I always saw this as the last vestige of his humanity rearing its head one last time. Cut to Tony watching more nostalgic television when Tony B calls. He talks this time. Tony cuts him off, not on the phone. Oh, it's been 16 years. Guy's rusty. Tony B's agenda is that he wants to make sure his kids are taken care of. T's agenda is to finally come clean with Tony B and also partially to ready himself for what ultimately has to happen to Tony B. He finally gets that guilt that's been suffocating him since episode two of this season off his conscience. Now we're even, he says. At this point, as a viewer, we recognize that two lives are now in danger this episode. There's still several minutes left. What's going to happen? Tony immediately calls Gerard to triangulate. He dumps the line. He dumps the line. And I say that because the exacting language in the facility for the vernacular is such a level above anything else out there. It commands you to be on a level with the writing. Or get the fuck out of here. Tony extended the conversation begrudgingly on purpose. We now know why. Kinderhook, 
upstate place called Roy's, which is not real based on my cursory search. Next, T calls Uncle Pat. There's a problem at the farm. Something about a special permit, which means that the structure is still erect. And Uncle Pat left prematurely. The place is empty. And right there, Tony sees all the permutations at internet speed. And you get the feeling that Tony B's days are numbered. This is the episode Tony B's gonna die. Yep, right there. But then, cut to Chris and Aid, planning their exit strategy, talking about memoirs, fireplaces. This whole scene is eerily out of place in The Sopranos. They're both happy and hopeful, delusional, but still. We as viewers submit to the muscle of Chase and actually believe there's a way out of this short of dire consequences or death. Like Will Hunting went to go see about a girl, maybe, just maybe, Chris will actually get to go see about a screenplay with Adriana at his side. Cue Elliot Smith and let's all go home, right? But first, Chris leaves to get cigarettes. One of my favorite autopsy observations of all time. Quote, When he leaves the cocoon of their apartment, can we describe him as a broken hero on a last chance power drive? You nailed that one, Ron. As he leaves, she senses something's off. It's a great moment for her to flee to the feds for protection. But she's too needy, too loyal to Christopher. And we have proof of this now because he came within a few seconds of killing her. And immediately after, she hugged him. Part of me has always wondered, is this already part of the move against aid? Does Christopher already know the dominoes that are about to drop? Did the gas station merely crystallize the plan? Note the nice touch that their last words to each other were back-to-back, I love yous. Cut to Robin listening to NPR. Her regularness of life, contrasted with AIDS just moments ago. Nice touch. Aid calls says she needs a little more time, that she can't push Christopher. Robin, too, is dubious. Could she have done anything here? I think so. I think she's professionally trained to see that Adriana is in a compromised situation and they need to encircle her before this gets out of hand for selfish reasons and for humanitarian reasons, right? Not only is she a key piece for their case, but her life is officially in danger. Next, we get Chris at the gas station. Quite possibly a top moment of the series. Certainly for him, I'd say. Money. Chasing it. Fear of his own mortality. All these things trumped love. 
another person's life, another person's innocence. Chris checks out a little. And we check out a little on him too. Without getting too ahead of ourselves here, this is the first moment you realize that things can't end well for Chris either. And I don't know how you feel, but I stopped cheering for him in this moment. And I think it's because for the first time, we know his arc. We've been wondering about it. But I think we finally know. And that makes our relationship to him a very different thing. He drags his finger along his shiny, expensive luxury SUV and sees the family. The car. The kids. The dad. That hair. The sound of the highway cutting through our brain as we process alongside Christopher. They never made eye contact, though, which was a smart choice. It would have taken away from the gravity of the moment, the realism, the tension. Any other TV show would have had those two motherfuckers lock eyes. That single beat of the show separates it entirely from anything else we've seen. Back on aid, packing. Note the clock says equity on it. Will her fate be equitable? Is anything fucking equitable? The phone rings. It's Tony. This whole thing happens so fast, right? Chris tried to commit suicide near Ramapo at a diner. His mother's on her way up there now. She said he was very upset. Did he say anything to you? I mean, did he appear suicidal? No. Are you sure? Because his mom said he's very upset about something. Was that Tony landing a blow? Let's break this down. Tony clearly knows Aid is talking to the feds. So he has to tailor-make this for her. Said in the way Tony says, tailor-made. So she doesn't suspect a trap. So what does he do? Like Don Henley, he goes right to the heart of the matter. Life and death. So she has no chance to question anything. The only thing she can fixate on is if Christopher is okay. It's impossible for her to see the trap because he's playing on her emotions. He says Sill's on his way, and then he plays with our emotions. I'll see you up there. Gasp. The Sopranos just analogized Ramapo to heaven. Also reminds me of another powerful thing Chase said once. No dialogue can be wasted. Referring to how in the traditional pre-cable convention, all the good stuff, the writerly stuff, had to get cut out to move the story or make room for an Irving explainer. That was a sad story for the creator, certainly, but also instructive in that nothing could be wasted. Every line had to drive stuff forward or stop the viewer in her tracks. And if you were lucky enough to wiggle some creative juice in there too, then that was the apex of the work. Incredible then to think that the Sopranos packed in that creative juice at every turn. 
and in a way that holds up better than anything else out there today. Cut to the shot of Adriana driving solo. The chase change-up, I call this. The song, Leaving California by Sean Smith, who sadly just died last year at 53. Then we cut to her in a car with Silvio. She was daydreaming. From a busy road to a lonely road. Simple, but significant. Then there's the trees, which conjure up something. Tree imagery. We've seen it before in different contexts and prior episodes. And there could be some overly polished relationship between trees and the sky and ascension and resurrection sprinkled in with some California bullshit. But here, I really just saw a regular person doing what regular people do when they're riding in a car, when not staring at their devices. Gazing outside at the periphery of the road and using it as a release valve for an overworked mind. Silvio's making small talk. We know that little Steven, Steven Van Zant, was not happy about this moment or scene, which makes his performance here extra special. He seems smug and passively hostile. You have to go to a really dark corner of yourself for that. And he did here. To a level that makes us cringe. So, when does she know? I've always felt she sensed something was off when Silvio takes that first exit and says Chris is very resilient. Why are you crying? He's going to be fine. It's a low blow, right? Because she's not going to be fine. And it all happens so fast after that. Again, I guess the car ride was the slow ease into it, but still. He pulls her out of the car, falling leaves all around. Silvio's shoulder shrug. Go back and watch that. As calculating and cold as it is for Silvio, it's a sort of rite of passage in a sense. A way to ready Van Zant, the person, to do something he doesn't want to do. And then the shot upward. Great choice. Beautiful choice. The etymology of both Silvio's and Adriana's names suggest a nice relationship in the form of a deer hunter reference. This is one of the most epic reaches of all time but about as fascinating a thought as any. The thought of Deer Hunter reminded me of a band of the same name that I love, and their album Monomania. There's a great track on there called THM, but that's besides the point. Monomania means exaggerated or obsessive enthusiasm for or preoccupation with one thing. I'll just leave that there. Cut to Chris packing. Place is a mess, which will become a recurring theme. Hold on to that. Drives her car out to the Meadowlands, throws her suitcase into the bushes. A little casual, no? Why throw it someplace in broad daylight? I always felt like this was a carrot 
of a bad move and something that would come back to haunt the series going forward. It's raining now. Symbolic. A cleansing of sorts, maybe, but mostly sadness over what just transpired. Then he drives her car to the airport and we get the scene where the episode gets its namesake. Long-term parking. Every step from the moment of Adriana's death until now is classic Christopher. A clinical professional at work. Cut to Tony and Johnny Sack. Skyline. What a thing of beauty. Always. The king of New York. Congratulations. Thanks, Tony. You deserve it. I want you to know this is the last time we'll meet like this. It's undignified. One of the best exchanges between the two of them in a series chock full of best exchanges. Johnny Sack wants to know about Tony B. What's the fucking deal, once and for all? Tony asks humbly to let him handle it himself as a friend. Tony's mood vacillations, right? We're going to get that in full swing right here. Johnny Sack chooses not to allow this. He says that Phil's going to do it and Phil's going to do it his way. Tony takes a long look at him from afar. Sees that ego Paulie just told him about moments ago. And then flips the script. He shows Johnny Sack undignified. Go fuck yourself. You and Phil and whoever. My fucking cousin. I'm not even going to try to emulate that. How great is the way he says that? The way it comes out. So, there we have it. What a great foundation to propel the story forward. To take us out of what just happened to Adriana and immediately focus us on this bedrock of disaster to look toward. Cut to Chris watching The Three Amigos. Always wondered about the choice for this film here. Besides the obvious three. Who are the three amigos in this instance? Tony, Chris, and Syl? The only three who know the truth about Adriana? So not only has Christopher had three drinks on three separate occasions this episode, but now he's high. Did that mean that's the only way he could get through that movie? Which, by the way... I mentioned SNL earlier. Lorne Michaels penned the three amigos. Powerful and uncharacteristic of Tony to ask him if he was all right. The guy came in with the best of intentions, but notices Chris is out of his mind. Tony lets him have it. Beats the shit out of him. That punch. You think you're alone in this? Again, who was the bigger problem? Chris or Aid? Makes you wonder at this point, now that she's gone. Contrast this with the scenes Tony had with Adriana, where she personified strength and structure. He even thought about starting a new life with her. With Chris, though, what's he really got? Back on the feds. These fucking guys can't stop tripping over themselves. Robin scrambling. 
You think she was out of her depth with this thing? She had a cooperator who was not as sophisticated or savvy or calculating or trained as other cooperators out there. Curdo, Pussy, so on and so forth. But she kind of blew it. And Agent Waldrop teed it up for her so perfectly. Anyway, she's naive enough to think Aid's still alive. She sounds a little like Aid there, actually. But Kubatoso and company know better. She sneaks out, and I think that's the last we ever see her. Kind of an unceremonious ending. As most regular things in life are. Kubatoso, without skipping a beat, attacks the next pressing matter. Makes you realize in an instant how much of a statistic, small potatoes, most of this shit is when you look at it from 30,000 feet. And finally, we cut to trees. For those that haven't exhaled since Adriana. Are we back where Aid was killed? First, we see just Tony, and for a moment, it's possible that he's there to inspect the Adriana job, make sure Silvio cleaned up after himself. But then there's that slow reveal of Carmela alongside Tony. It's the lot on Crestview. Death, betrayal, conflict, war. Dysentery in the ranks. But she's talking business. The regularness of life goes on. And Tony's in his head. Like we kind of still are, after what just happened. And then we get that long, wide shot of the two of them. Almost like somebody's watching them from afar. Or at least the illusion of it. We fade to black over the song Wrapped in My Memory by Sean Smith again. Got two big sinks in one episode. But more importantly, apt title for a song in this moment in this episode. Tony, like us, is only thinking about one thing and will be for some time. Adriana. That's all I got. See you next time. It will-